understand. Book of Ephesians, if you could turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll start at verse 1. That's what we're up to. Just by way of introduction, uh, if you haven't heard any of these, the other lessons, the book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Gentile churches in Ephesus. Um, there were two types of peoples, according to the Jews. There were Jews and then there were Gentiles, anyone who wasn't a Jew. Um, the Jews were the ones that had been given the laws and the ways of God. The Gentiles were the ones that hadn't and were forever lost. Um, Paul was a Jew, a former Pharisee who had been taught perfectly. That, that is until the, way, until the time of the church, of course. Um, Paul was a Jew, a former Pharisee who had been taught perfectly all the laws and the commandments of God and of the Pharisees. The book of Ephesians is split into two parts. The first three chapters talk about how God has made for the way, a way for the Gentiles to be saved along with the Jews and how awesome and incredible that is. The last three chapters, which is where we're at, contain instruction and warning against the things of the world which come naturally to the Gentiles and the things of God which don't come naturally to the Gentiles. So in our last lesson, we finished with Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 33, the end of Ephesians chapter 5. And we talked about the marriage relationship between a man and his wife, comparing that with the marriage relationship between Christ and his church. Ephesians 6.1 continues on in the same vein from the marriage relationship to talk about the relationship between children and their parents. So we start in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children that are in the church are commanded to obey their parents in the Lord. What does that mean? Are they only commanded to obey their parents if their parents are, if, if they're, both their parents are following God as well? Well, it's a bit more involved than that. The parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. The command is essentially for children to obey their parents in anything that is not contrary to the laws of God. This means that if both of your parents are not in the church or even whether one or both of your parents are in the church, and they tell you to do something against God's principles and ways, or to not do something in line with God's principles and ways, that you shouldn't follow them in that instance. Everything else that they ask you to do in line with God's principles and ways, you should obey. You don't get to choose which things are in line with the principles and ways of God, though. <laughs> um, those things are what are set out in the, in the Bible. For example, if your parents ask you to take out the rubbish, that doesn't contradict any of the principles or the ways of God as much as you may want it to. And if your parents, um, by contrast, if your parents tell you not to pray or read the Bible, whether they're in the church or not, that's something that you shouldn't obey. There's a right way to go about it, though. Telling your parents with defiance that you're going to pray or read the Bible anyway is not the best way to approach the situation. Some wisdom needs to be used in this situation and it may mean that you need to be more careful about the times and the ways in which you follow Jesus. Some situations are harder than others and your pastor is not a big ogre with body odor, not a B.O. with B.O. Um, he will be happy to discuss your situation and give you wise guidance from the Lord as to how to approach and handle your particular personal situation. Vision 6.2, Honour thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee and thou mayest live long on the earth. 
Whether you have good or bad or even wicked and evil parents, you should still honor them. You don't have to agree with everything that they do or say to honor them, though. You should always treat your parents with respect in a godly way, whether they deserve it or not. This is what God requires and expects of us as children. And that requirement doesn't disappear when you grow up and leave home either. God still expects us to honor our parents, to give respect, concern, and honor to those who gave us life and raised us, whether they did a good job of it or not. After all, when we look at things spiritually, God is our father and the church is our mother. God always expects us to honor, love, and respect him and the church family as well. The Bible says that we should love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Our closest neighbors in the spiritual sense are our church family. And part of true love, which God has called us to, is showing honor and respect for the one that we love. If you truly love someone, how can you do any less than honor and respect them? And what God requires of us in the spiritual sense He also requires of us in the physical and literal sense as well. This is good, it is seemly, and it is right. And God actually puts blessings on people that honor their parents, as verse 3 says, that it may be well with thee and thou mayest live long on the earth. And when you add that to the fact that under the law of the Old Testament, anyone that cursed their mother or father were put to death, that gives you an indication of just how important God sees their family unit as being. The family unit was put into place by God himself. It's no wonder that Satan and mankind are doing everything they can to tear down that God-given family unit. Single parents, same-sex marriages, abusive parents, all of those types of relationships tear down the natural order and upbringing of children, leading to children growing up with serious issues, which usually has a roll-on effect of those children in turn passing on the same or similar issues or even completely different issues to their children as well. There's a huge snowball effect. From The Bride's Pearl, a commentary on Ephesians, authored by uh, a United Pentecostal Church minister, Reverend Brian Kinsey, which I've used quite extensively as a reference. When the family is in disarray, society's moral fiber is torn, the people who suffer the most are the children. And the world is suffering the consequences of this epidemic. But the world is blind to what is happening. They excuse it. They minimize it. They talk about things happening in cycles. They talk about how these things used to happen in times past as well. To which I say, yeah, but how often did they happen back then? In fact, the world today thinks that it is the best, the most enlightened, the most accommodating generation that the world has ever seen. That's, that's the way that they see it when it's actually one of the most wicked, confused, hurting and depraved generations that the world has ever seen. Verse 4. And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Not only do children have obligations to their parents, but parents have obligations to their children as well. It's not a one-sided relationship where one has to do everything for the other and nothing gets done in return. The parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21 states, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. 
looking back at when we were just looking at the relationship of children to their parents, what do you think happens to the parents when their own child disrespects and dishonors them? The parents are wounded and hurt deeply, and this often leads to anger, especially in the father more so than the other mother. Your parents are greatly discouraged. That is the effect of a lack of honor. And here we have a commandment that the parents, and especially fathers, aren't to anger and discourage their children as well. There's a symmetry to the teaching here that Paul is giving. The father was specifically mentioned here because he is the God-given head of the home, so the instruction also applies by extension to his wife as well. They don't get off scot-free. <laughs> um, I believe that the father was also specifically mentioned here because it is the father that is more likely to provoke their children to anger rather than the mother. The masculine nature can easily lend itself to harshness, which can be hurtful to children rather than helpful. And the mother tends to naturally nurture their children. It's part of what God has put in in the lady. But this is a spiritual nurture and admonition that is required here. And so the responsibility falls on the spiritual head of the house, i.e. the father. Part of this godly nurturing is encouragement, without which children very rarely live up to their potential. And that goes in a spiritual sense as well. Another part of this godly nurturing is discipline. The Greek word, padia, which is translated here in the verse as the word nurture, means discipline. Encouragement needs to be coupled together with discipline for godly nurturing to be effective. The world today wants children to be raised by encouragement only without discipline. And their recommendations and methods are failing miserably. The world today is the least respectful society that there has been in modern history. And you only have to walk outside to um, your front doors to find that out. Encouragement without discipline fails miser miserably. And discipline without encouragement fails miserably as well. They need to go hand in hand to truly be effective. From the commentary, The Bride's Pearl again, discipline is too often left to the mother. A mother needs to uphold the discipline of the father but he has the primary responsibility for the training and discipline of the children. The Greek word nothesia, which is translated here in the verse as the word admonition, just simply means instruction. From the commentary again, parents need to teach their children to love, respect, and obey God. Many times they leave this task to the Sunday school teacher and the pastor, but God desires for the home to provide this teaching as well. But verbal instruction is not enough. The parents' lives should provide a path for the children to follow. Example is always the best teacher. You can say something unless you're blue in the face, but if you're showing something different by the way you live, then you're going to set the wrong example. You're going to teach your children the wrong things. Ephesians 6 verse 5. Servants. Be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Not with thy service, as men pleases, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will doing service as to the Lord, and not to men. 
Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. The parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to 25, is quite similar, but provides a slightly different perspective. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleases, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, for there and there is no respect of persons. Paul is specifically talking about the relationship of Christian slaves to their masters in this section of scriptures. Slaves, back in those days, were actually the property and the possession of their masters, and therefore they could treat them however they wished. It's interesting to note that in the times of the Bible, slavery was a common and accepted practice, and that the Bible itself never condemned slavery. However, from the commentary, I'll read, The New Testament did not openly condemn slavery, yet the principles taught by Jesus and the apostles definitely opposed such a social order. The gospel was not designed to overthrow governments, but to overthrow sin in the hearts of people. Once delivered from sin, they would begin to view the world, including servants, with a new heart. Change from within is a more effective method of correcting the social disorders that plague society. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 21 to 23 provides further evidence of this fact. Are thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's free man. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price, be not ye the servants of men. Slaves converted to Christianity were greatly hindered in their ability to minister to others as they were at the beck and call of their masters at any time of any day. So the requirements put in them by the Lord in service to him were greatly lessened. In essence, they were the Lord's free men. However, God has called everyone else to be his servants and, in essence, his slaves. In spite of the master-slave situation back then, history records that certain slaves did become church leaders and ministers in the church even despite these circumstances. So why are we talking about this passage if it is only talking about masters and slaves and we know that slavery has been abolished? The reason is that this passage has application to the employer-employee relationships we find ourselves in today as well. There's a master, my boss, and a servant, me. For example, I work in a state government job at Main Roads, and my official description is public servant, like any other state government employee. Yes, I have a different job title, and I work under a boss like everyone else, but the whole idea is that I am a servant to the public. Not in the literal master-slave sense, although I'm sure some members of the public see it that way by the way they behave, and I imagine that more people still wish it were that way. But I am employed to support the state government to fulfill its obligations to the people of Western Australia. My employer is Main Roads, and I am an employee of Main Roads, and in essence, a servant without being an actual slave. And the same modern definition of servant applies to all employer and employee relationships today. From the commentary, 
It's talking about in the midst of this chaotic society back in the time of the Romans, Paul urged the servants to be obedient to their masters as unto Christ. They are not really serving their earthly masters who only have authority according to the flesh, but their master in heaven. Becoming a Christian does not erase one's obligation to do a good job. Employees of today can take this good advice and become better witnesses for Jesus by giving their employers an honest day's work. And then it follows on, servants are to give their work the utmost attention, whether their master is watching them or not. Some people work hard only when they are being watched and can expect special favors from the boss. A true Christian knows that his work exemplifies, and I'm talking about he and she um, in, in this passage, his walk with God, that his work exemplifies his walk with God. He does not do a good job simply to be rewarded by his earthly boss, but because he is a servant of God. As a servant of the Lord, he performs his duties, knowing that this is God's will for his life, and he does it from the heart. And a little bit later, a willingness to serve, which brings glory to God, ultimately serves as a witness that Jesus is Lord. It's all about how we approach our work and our work situations. But what do you do when you have a bad boss? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 23 gives some insight again from the perspective of masters and slaves. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward or the evil. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God." So if we, if we, um, if a boss calls us and uh, and talks to us about something that we've done wrong, and we've done that wrong, then there's no glory in that. There, you're getting basically the rewards of of your actions. But if you do well and you suffer for it, and you do it in the right way, then God is glorified in your actions and in your reactions. Continue, it continues on for even here unto were you called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. We should be able to be a Christian even in a bad employment situation. God hasn't promised us that every job we get will have a good employer, just like the slaves weren't promised and didn't have any control over whether their master was good to them or not. What God has promised us is that he will provide all our needs. And one of our needs in this modern day and age is for employment. Without a job, you can't get money and you can't live and survive. But just as God hasn't promised us a rosy walk through life, God hasn't promised us that every job we get will have an awesome boss. And sometimes God puts us in those situations to test and to try us, to help mold and shape us into the people that he wants us to be. You don't know how you'll react to a situation until you go through it. You can analyze a particular situation all you want from the outside, say exactly what you would do and say, but until you're in the middle of the trial, you don't know anything. That's where we find out how close to God we really are and how much we will react like Jesus would 
or not. If your boss is getting in your face and hurling abuse, do you just give it right back? Or do you react like Jesus in that when he was reviled, he reviled not again? If your boss is giving you a hard time for no reason, do you give them a piece of your mind? Or are you like Jesus who when he suffered, he threatened not? Are you able to hold your tongue when you suffer wrongfully or do you just let it all out? Are you able to wait patiently until God reveals the truth of the situation and vindicates you completely or do you just quit? Do you just give up? Everything God allows us to go through is for our good. And a very often quoted piece of scripture is Romans 8.28 and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. But sometimes our own pride and hasty and unthinking actions mean that we don't get the full benefit of God's handiwork in our lives. A lump of clay on the potter's wheel needs to be shaped and formed, which is uncomfortable and even painful for the clay as much as it can't really feel But when we think about it in our lives. But to be able to be used properly, it has to go through the fire to harden it into a vessel that can be used for its intended purpose. God puts us in situations that we don't like sometimes that will test us to the limit. But if we submit to his molding and shaping, we will be better people, better Christians, better servants of Jesus. Ephesians 6 and 9. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Just like Paul's previous sections give instruction to both the husband and the wife, and then the children and their parents, as we looked at today, in like manner, Paul also gave instruction to both Christian slaves and Christian masters as well. Being an employer doesn't mean that you get to treat your employees like dirt. From the commentary, masters are to treat their servants in the same manner as servants are to treat their masters, with fairness, diligence, respect, and obedience to God. They must forego threats of abuse or even worse, carrying out those threats. Under Roman law, the master had complete control over the lives of his slaves, but this verse establishes restraints and duties for the master, transforming the relationship. The master must treat his servants in a way that will be pleasing to the Lord, knowing that God will judge him by the same standard that he will use for everyone else. If I could get uh, someone to the piano, please. I just want to ask you, well, a few questions or make a few statements. If you felt uncomfortable or been challenged by this message, And I know it's teaching, but teaching doesn't mean you switch off. Teaching doesn't mean that God can't speak to us in our own situations and in our own particular circumstances and and speak to our hearts and our actions and our motives. If you felt uncomfortable or been challenged by this message, then God is speaking to you this morning. I don't know everybody's situations. I don't know your relationships with everyone, with your employees, Uh, employers, employees. But I do know that God does. And he gives the right word at the right time to give us an opportunity to make things right. God impressed me last night to give this altar call. And it might seem a bit unusual for teaching, but I know that this message is timely for at least one person here this morning. 
And knowing the way that God works, I know that this message has spoken to and even challenged many hearts in this place. I know that there are things here that challenge me and drive me to be a better Christian and a servant of Jesus. So the Lord wants to give you an opportunity to talk with Him this morning and to allow Him to speak to you and to direct your paths. I invite you to come to the front of the church. You can sit, you can stand, you can kneel. But please come and talk to Jesus this morning. If, if there's something in this message that has talked to you, has touched you this morning.